It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 288 for April 15th, 2012. This week, which is better, Evernote or Microsoft's OneNote? Film, it's the final frontier for digital photographers. Windows 8 is termed a radical redesign, and that's apt, but it's also needlessly scary. In short circuits, the death of a bumblebee, Facebook snaps up Instagram, and a flashback to Apple's flashback Trojan attack. Several years ago, I found Microsoft OneNote and immediately fell in love with it. But there are several problems with OneNote. First and foremost, Microsoft doesn't include it with every version of Office. No matter what Adobe Creative Suite package you buy, Bridge is included. OneNote, I think, is to Office as Bridge is to the Creative Suite. But Microsoft has never figured that out. If you want OneNote, you have to buy either one of the more expensive suites or license it separately. If you're not willing to pay extra for OneNote, you might want to consider Evernote. OneNote isn't really expensive. It costs about $80 a computer. That's a one-time fee, and applications such as the free SugarSync Synchronizer can keep your OneNote files in sync from one computer to another. Evernote, however, is free if the files you're sharing total no more than about 5 gigabytes. For more than that, you need the premium version, which turns out to be $45 a year, but that's regardless of how many computers you're synchronizing files on. Monthly uploads are limited to one gigabyte a month. That seems a little stingy. When it comes to formatting data on the screen, Microsoft OneNote turns out to be the Ferrari, while Evernote is the Yugo. Evernote has an advantage, though, in that it's available for Windows, Apple's OS X, the iPhone, the iPod Touch, Android devices, BlackBerry, and Windows mobile devices. It also has plugins for Internet Explorer, Firefox, Safari, and Chrome. OneNote runs on Windows and offers some capabilities on Android devices and on Apple's portable devices, but it's not available for Apple computers. Unfortunately, Evernote is so minimalistic that it lacks even basic formatting capabilities and this compares with OneNote's relatively robust and sophisticated formatting. OneNote isn't Word, but it does offer a lot of formatting options. And OneNote also has the ability to add tags with icons to any individual paragraph. I've reviewed OneNote previously. You'll find a link to that previous review on the TechBiter Worldwide website. At that time, I gave it a 4-cat rating. That was back in 2010. And that rating still stands. Evernote falls short in many areas, but it is still an application that's well worth considering. Evernote's biggest advantage is that it works just about everywhere. As I said, PC or Mac computer, iOS, Android, BlackBerry and Windows phones, tablets, notebooks, just about everything. I like that. Because formatting is limited, you won't be distracted while entering notes by thinking about the formatting. Now, this is the same logic I use when I prepare reviews in a text processor, UltraEdit Studio, instead of in Word or Dreamweaver. During the writing phase, the words are important and the formatting is unimportant, so that formatting disadvantage could actually be turned to your advantage. 
And despite the sparse interface, Evernote does a lot. You can add an ink note if your computer has a stylus, or a video note or an audio note. When it comes to text, though, your only choices are standard paragraphs of text and extremely basic tables. But as I said, maybe that's not so bad after all. You can, of course, drop an image or a URL into Evernote, and as you do that, you can apply one or more tags to the note so that it'll be easier to find later. The Evernote trunk contains information about and links to add-ons for hardware, software, and notebooks that can enhance your note-taking experience. If you choose Evernote, it's well worth taking the time to look there occasionally. Regardless of whether you choose OneNote or Evernote to help you keep track of bits of information, the key is to use the application. This may seem painfully obvious, but it's real easy to install an application that you think might help you, and then just continue doing things the way you've always done them. And then, of course, you feel a new application isn't helping at all, and it isn't, because you're not letting it. Keep track of people, places, and things. Both applications have good search functions, so both can help you to find what you're looking for, even if you don't organize it very well. Record information about procedures you don't need very often. I have to change my password every 42 days at the office, and the password change procedure is complicated because it involves corporate facilities, division facilities, my local computer, encryption software, and access to a variety of local resources. When I update the password for one system, I want to update it for all of the systems. A note reminds me of the many steps in that process. So instead of taking an hour to do a bad job of changing the password, I can do it in about 15 minutes. Make note of anything you need occasionally and might forget. How many things are there that you need to do just once or twice a year? Places you go occasionally, but forget the details of which exit to take or where to turn. Medications you take daily, but can never remember when asked. These are all candidates for inclusion in OneNote or Evernote. The bottom line on Evernote, it's serious competition for Microsoft's OneNote. I'll give it a 3-cat rating. Microsoft's OneNote may have more features, but Evernote works on more operating systems, and synchronization is easier and more automatic than with OneNote. Either will work for most people, but the key point, if you decide to start using a note tracker, is to force yourself to consistently use it until it becomes a reflex action. For more information, visit the Evernote website. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Digital photography offers huge advantages over film photography. Cost, performance in low-light situations, and immediate feedback, just to name three. For others, you could ask the Eastman Kodak Company. But the small minority of photographers who have stuck with film well into the digital age say that film has a special look. And you know what? They're right. But maybe they're also just a bit short-sighted because that film look can be replicated digitally, and you're not limited to just any one film look with any individual image. Try several film looks and see what you like best. To illustrate this article, I decided to start with a picture of Nico. That's the cat that my younger daughter lives with. In the picture I selected, Nico was preparing to look out the front window, possibly watching for another cat that sometimes stops by to engage in a staring contest. Having just loaded the latest edition of Alien Skin's Exposure plugin for Photoshop CS4 and later, and Lightroom version 2 and above, 
I thought I'd see what I could make it do. This is Alien Skin Exposure 4. If you like what you can do with Instagram, and you'll hear more about Instagram in short circuits today, you're going to love Exposure 4. And if you thought Exposure 3 offered a wide choice of film appearances, well, to be colloquial about it, you ain't seen nothing yet. The first thing I noticed about Exposure 4 is that it seems to offer many more selections than were available in Exposure 3. Now, this may in part be the result of Exposure 4's combining color and monochrome films in the same control panel. No longer must you choose between monochrome or color versions of the filter. Start with color and then try monochrome. You don't have to back out and switch gears. A close second is the improved and enlarged control panel. The interface is still very easy to use. Pick an overall look in the left column, examine the modified image in the center, and then select various tabs at the right to modify positions of numerous sliders to change the image's appearance. For Nico, I decided to see what would happen if I gave her a Tri-X film with two-stop push processing. Look, now what this means is that the 400-speed Tri-X film from Kodak would have been exposed as if it had had a rating of 1600. And then it would have been processed in the darkroom in a way that would bring out some of the shadow detail. But it would also increase the film's inherent grain. Been there, done that. I also added some age effects to the image by adding a vignette that was centered on Nico's nose. You might convincingly pass this image off as something that was actually made in the 1960s with a fairly inexpensive camera. Next, I decided to try Fuji Neopan 1600. This is a film that was a high-speed film, but still tight-grained and low-contrast. And the filter, as you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, closely approximates the look of the film. And on this one, I made no modifications to the default settings. Some films and processes are no longer available. Calotype is one of those. At least it's not available unless you make it yourself. William Henry Fox Talbot invented the technique in 1841. Instead of using film for the original exposure, film hadn't been invented yet, and he didn't use glass plates either, because they hadn't been invented yet. The process used paper that was coated with silver iodide. Talbot's earlier methods required exposures of an hour or more in sunlight, but the calotype process made short exposures of a minute or so possible, and that made it possible to photograph any person or object that could be convinced to sit still for a minute or two. The calotype process produced a translucent negative that could then be used to make prints by what's called contact printing, the negative placed on top of a paper that will be used for the final positive image, and then the sandwiched pair is exposed to light. This was a distinct improvement over the daguerreotype process, which created a single positive image in camera, an image that could be duplicated only by being photographed again. And speaking of daguerreotype, Exposure 4 makes that process available too. The daguerreotype image is formed on the surface of a mirror-like silver plate, and the resulting images are unstable. They oxidize when exposed to air. The image can also easily be rubbed off the plate, so daguerreotypes are usually placed inside sealed cases, or at least in frames with a glass cover. Because they're so fragile, most daguerreotypes exhibit at least some damage. Exposure 4 makes it possible to add that kind of damage to your new daguerreotype. The earlier Exposure 3 also made it possible to add dust and scratches to images, but the process really wasn't very good. The dust and scratches were completely computer-generated and generally unconvincing. 
Jeff Butterworth, the founder of Alien Skin Software, says that Exposure 4 uses a new texture overlay feature based on real photographs, and it does a much better job. And indeed it does. Most Kodacolor prints made before about 1970 have faded badly because the early commercial papers weren't very stable. Even at their best, the colors in those days weren't particularly accurate or saturated. So I set up Exposure 4 to give me a coat of color look from about 1950. And I think it's pretty realistic. It's possible with Exposure 4 to replicate the look created by older 35mm or 126 film cameras that had light leaks. But light leaks could also occur in cameras that used what was called roll film. You may remember those as 120, 220, or 620. Those are some of the many sizes. Film in these rolls was taped to a carrier paper, and the photographer who didn't seal the roll of film very well would find light damage on some of the resulting prints. Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website to see an example of that. The real key to enjoying Exposure 4 is experimenting with the array of settings in the right panel. Color, Tone, Focus, Grain, Infrared, and Age. Each of those have several sliders that change how the image looks. Sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're not so subtle. If you don't want to experiment at first, that's fine. Just choose a nice selection of factory presets from the left. And then when you begin experimenting on your own and find a setting you like enough that you want to repeat it, save it as one of your own presets. The bottom line for Alien Skin Exposure 4, 5 cats, it brings the film look into the digital age. You would be forgiven for expecting that Alien Skin Exposure 4 would just be a minor upgrade from Exposure 3, but the instant you open this new version, you'll know that's not the case. If you bought Exposure 3 in November of 2011 or later, the upgrade to Exposure 4 is free. Otherwise, you'll pay about $100 for the upgrade. A new license can be had for about $175, at least until April 17th. There's a 30% off sale going right now. And Exposure 4 is included in Alien Skin's Photo Bundle, which also includes Bokeh, Blow Up, Image Doctor, and Snap Art. It's about $350 through the 17th. If you're the kind of digital photographer who likes to create images with a highly distinctive appearance, it's money well spent. For more information, you can visit the Alien Skin Exposure 4 website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. week I was watching a Short Windows 8 presentation on lynda.com by David Gassner, 72 minutes in which he described the operating system from Microsoft as a radical redesign of Windows. That's an apt description, but radical is likely to frighten some people, and that's unfortunate because while the changes are radical, they're also designed to make it possible for Windows users to have similar experiences across various platforms, from tablets and notebooks to desktop systems and servers. In recent days, we have learned that the Start menu will definitely not be coming back. Although I realize that the Start menu will no longer be an important part of Windows 8, I'm still concerned that many users will take one look at the new operating system and decide they will not upgrade. For those who are currently running Windows 7, that decision won't be a significant problem for a few years. But those who are still using Windows XP will soon find themselves in very uncomfortable surroundings. 
If you're at all interested in where Windows 8 will take you and how it'll get there, I recommend watching David Gassner's program at lynda.com. As with the recent Adobe Photoshop CS6 preview program that I recommended, this entire program is available for free. The program shows how to get started with the Windows 8 Consumer Preview, which was recently released. It describes the three installation options you have. Either Windows 8 is the primary operating system replacing Windows 7, side-by-side -side with Windows 7, or in a virtual machine that runs under some other operating system. If you're thinking about replacing Windows 7 with Windows 8 Consumer Preview, do that only if the machine that you're planning to install on is a true test system. Don't put it on a production machine. Don't put it on your main machine at home. Gassner also shows how the Windows 8 user interface works both on tablets and on computers with keyboards and mice. He explains the differences between the Metro interface and the desktop, both of which are available if you run Windows 8 on a desktop system, or on a notebook. There's even a brief session on the Windows Store where you can purchase apps, videos, and music, or download some of the free ones. In all, it's an hour well spent if you're interested in what's ahead for Windows users. In short circuits, a man from Poland whose name means Bumblebee has died. He drove a taxi, he repaired typewriters. The man from Poland went into business with a company in Czechoslovakia when that country was still behind the Iron Curtain, and he set up a business front in Toronto so that he could import parts for office machines that were assembled here in the U.S. Jack Trammell was 83. Why is this man's passing of note to TechBiter Worldwide listeners? Well, the company he founded to import parts from Czechoslovakia was called Commodore International. And Jack Trammell was one of the first people in the world to recognize that a market existed for personal computers. He started selling the Commodore 64 in 1982. In 1984, he bought the Atari Corporation after resigning from Commodore in a dispute over how to run the company. The Atari 800 was my first personal computer. I still have it, and as of a few years ago, it still worked. But the Commodore 64 was the first real blockbuster computer. There were other Commodore models before it. It sold 15 million units over the years, probably in large part because of Trammell's motto, which was, we need to build computers for the masses, not the classes. Trammell was sent to Auschwitz with his family during World War II and arrived in the United States in 1947. Commodore began in 1955 as a typewriter company, moved on to calculators in the 1970s. Now, you can still buy a Commodore 64 computer today. The C64 Supreme costs about $1,300. It comes with 4 gigabytes of memory, a 1 terabyte hard drive. The Commodore operating system is installed, but you can add Windows if you want. Jack Trammell is not as well known as some of the personal computer pioneers, but he is somebody who should not be forgotten.
Recently, my daughters have been adding images to Facebook via a service called Instagram. Now, it turns out that Facebook will acquire Instagram for about $1 billion in cash and stock. That would make the acquisition Facebook's largest so far. If you have an Apple or Android smartphone, you can download the Instagram app and use it to reduce the quality of images from your phone. Instagram says it's a fun and quirky way to share photos with friends. Applying an Instagram filter makes the photo you take today look like something from a $5 camera made in 1956. Now, that's not a criticism. Sometimes these conversions can create striking images. Facebook, about to be flush with cash from its initial public stock offering, realizes that Instagram has something that a lot of Facebook users will like. And by flush with cash, I mean the IPO could raise $10 billion for the company. The purchase isn't a bad deal for the founders who created Instagram just two years ago, fresh out of Stanford University. Initially, Instagram worked only on Apple iPhones, but recently it's been updated to work with Android devices, too. Instagram co-founder Kevin Systrom gave one of the keynote presentations at this year's South by Southwest conference in Austin. In that speech, he described the application's growth, doubling its number of users since December. With the launch of the Android application, Instagram picked up millions more users and now claims more than 30 million users. So what makes Instagram worth $1 billion? It's probably not the employees. There are only a dozen or so of them at this point. It's probably not the income because the application is free and there is no income. It's definitely not the company's revenue because that's zero or negative. But this is an application that can probably be monetized, or at least somebody at Facebook must think it can be. A year ago, Benchmark Capital invested $7 million in the company and said at the time that it was probably worth about $25 million. Some users are concerned about privacy and security. Instagram currently offers users relatively strong controls over who can see their photos. Facebook's privacy policies have, of course, been a bit less robust. After dawdling for long enough that fraudsters were able to take advantage of flaws in its OS X operating system, Apple has issued two updates within about a week. Too little, too late. More than 600,000 Apple computers have been affected. This didn't have to happen. The fault in Java has been known for months, and Oracle patched it months ago. So it isn't something new. The vulnerability was discovered last September, and in the intervening half-year, it has become a more serious threat. Why Apple waited so long to address the problem is unclear. Last week's second iteration of the patch apparently was an attempt to correct problems with the first version of the patch. As usual, Apple won't say. Instead, Apple just says the new patch delivers improved compatibility, security, and reliability by updating Java SE 6 to Java 1.6.0 underscore 31. Then, this week, Apple released an integrated tool that removes the malware. It's part of a security update that became available at midweek and joins similar tools from F-Secure, Kaspersky, and Symantec. 
Estimates of the number of machines infected range from 270,000 on the low end to over 600,000 on the high end. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.